0: So, for the remaining five weeks that we have in Lent before Easter, we're going to be looking at the miracles of Christ found in the Gospel of Mark in particular. This is actually a continuation of a series that we began long ago back in 2015, where we took like 10 weeks to go through chapter one. And then we decided, man, at this pace, we're never going to finish the (laughs) Gospel of Mark. So, in the next five weeks, we're going to cover chapters four, five, and six, looking at the miracles. Of Christ, And so uh, this morning, we're going to read the passage in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. If you do me the honor of standing as we read the word of God this morning. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There, was, there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Here ends a reading of God's word. You may be seated. So the setting of the story is the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a lake just north of Israel. It's seven miles wide, 13 miles long, and it's located in a basin 700 feet below sea level. Uh, And it's surrounded by mountains on both sides. In particular, Mount Hermon, which stands to the east, towers at 9,200 feet above sea level, meaning that the interchange between the warm air rising up from the sea and the cold air falling down from the mountain uh, results in, in some ferocious, violent storms that would appear out of nowhere and torment the lake. To this day, on the western side of the lake, there are warning signs in all of the parking lots because you can park there on a bright, sunny, Galilean day, walk into a restaurant, have lunch over a period of an hour, walk out only to see your car float off into the surf. It's kind of like Michigan weather. You never know what to expect. Now, keep in mind that the Jews were not a seafaring people, right? They were 12 Bedouin tribes from the desert uh, who found a home in Israel on the coast in the the Mediterranean, but they were scared to death of the water, in particular, the sea. And here's why. In ancient Near East, uh, the sea was symbolic for evil and darkness and chaos and disorder, Right. So much so you see that when you read through the Hebrew scriptures and even in the New Testament, right? When you, one of the closing images in the book of Revelation is when it talks about the new heavens and new earth, when we will be with God forever. And one of the descriptions it uses, it says that there will be no more sea. If you're a beach lover, you may read that and you're like, oh, I know, I'm so bummed, right? No seas or lakes. That's not actually the point. The point isn't that there isn't going to be any seas or lakes or oceans. Rather, there will be no more evil, no more chaos, no more darkness, and no more disorder. So to the ancient Jew, the sea was not a place that you went on a family vacation. Rather, it was a place where God and evil clashed, and the sea was a place where the monster Leviathan, which is actually referenced in the book of Job and Psalms and Isaiah, at the monster Leviathan dwelled in the sea. And so the sea was a daily reminder of the, that we live in a broken and fallen world under the temporary rule of Satan and his demonic forces. And even to this day, thousands of years later, ingrained in the culture of the people of that part of the world is this deep subconscious, if not conscious, fear of the sea. All that to say, the story that we read this morning is a story about a storm, but it's also a story of so much more than just a storm. So what we're going to do is we're going to take some time, kind of verse by verse, deconstruct and provide a little to the story. So hopefully by the end, you go, oh, okay, this makes so much more sense, and we'll draw a few lessons from that. So going back to the story, verse 35, it says, that day when evening came, Jesus had spent, just spent the entire day teaching, like the entire day, and now it's evening. He said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Now, the other side is a region called the Decapolis, Uh, The only reason you need to know that, which we'll reference later on, is that uh, Jesus is crossing over from Jewish territory to Gentile territory. From the land of of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their hometown, to like a place that is uh, filled with unclean spirits, in their imagination, a dark and scary place. Uh, And then in verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. So Jesus was already in the boat. What was he doing there? Jesus was teaching from the boat, which was natural back in those times. He used the water as a natural sound system and the embankment where the crowds would have sat as a natural amphitheater. So after teaching in the evening, they pull up anchor and they head off. Verse 37, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now let's dig in a little bit to some context here. The phrase furious squall in Greek can be translated hurricane, right? So the waves are crashing about and uh, crashing over the side of the boat. It's, the water is filling up and they are about to capsize. And now keep in mind, this is a boat, not a ship, and so, back in 1986, they, in they discovered a, a first-century Galilean uh, fishing boat, and it would have measured about 27 feet long, about 7 feet wide, and about 4 feet high, powered by a one sail and four people on oars uh, with a seating capacity of about 15 people. All that to say is this. You do not want to face a hurricane in this, Right? Verse uh, 38, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Again, here, uh, near the front and the back of of a fishing boat, there would have been a large sandbag serving as a ballast, which provides stability to the boat. Uh, um, And Jesus was up there taking a nap, uh, because that's what you do in the middle of a hurricane, right? You take a nap. You uh, get a little shut-eye. Jesus is in the stern, sleeping in the boat. And this says so much about Jesus. On one hand, it means that Jesus was tired after a long, hard day of preaching and teaching all day long. I can only imagine, right? Believe this or not, my Fitbit says that I burn as much calories during one service on Sunday as I do on a two-mile run. Yeah, see, this is my Fitbit a couple weeks ago, right? Right? 9 30, 11, and 5 p.m. service. Yeah, it's crazy. So after three services, I go home and I am just like catatonic. I have no energy except to like grab dinner, lay on the couch, and like watch Sunday night football, which sadly is no more, right? Oh, it's so discouraging not only that but last uh, a couple uh, was it last week yeah a couple of weeks ago the week after the Super Bowl uh, some of you know that uh, before we moved to Ann Arbor we, we hailed from Philadelphia so a handful of you came up to me and we were like oh congratulations you must be so happy that the Eagles won their first Super Bowl not knowing that I am actually a die-hard Patriots fan yeah, my wife, who, who's grown up in Philadelphia all her life, was very happy, and so you can imagine. Sunday after the evening service, I mean, it was like civil war before, like we uh, before the Super Bowl was on. Well, you know the result of that game, I, I, which just like exhausted me and tired uh, and like made me more tired more, more than ever. I went to bed that evening. The next morning, I wake up, and the first thing—well, like when I wake up, I-, I turn to Amy, I like roll over, and the first thing I say to her is like, "Oh, I feel so empty <laughs> right <laughs> now." Because only the Patriots lost, but now it's like, what do I do Sunday mornings after the evening service? I can't watch football. <laughs> Anyways, uh, where was I? <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, He was tired, yeah, yeah. so he's tired. And so I can only imagine that Jesus is dead tired and he's asleep in the stern uh, on a cushion. This also speaks to something else about Jesus, right? That Jesus demonstrates complete trust in the Father, that he's at complete rest and at peace in the middle of a hurricane. The disciples, on the other hand, are freaking out, right? It says the disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown, right? They are absolutely terrified, right, um, of the storm, which says a lot because remember, some of these guys were fishermen and they made their living on the sea. And so the fact that these, these disciples are terrified of the storm means that even the storm is so ferocious it even overwhelmed them. And so they cry out, Jesus, what's wrong with you? Get up. Come on, help us out of here. Don't you care about what's happening to us? Verse 39, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. This is fascinating. The phrase used here is the same phrase used in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus casts out a demon from a man. Back in Mark chapter 1, Jesus rebuked the demon and said to him, Mark chapter 1 in English, Quiet, come out of him. And then Jesus says the exact same phrase in the original language here. Not to a demonized man, but to the storm. In Greek, uh, it it is the second person singular. And if you're not an English teacher, what that means is, it's like Jesus is talking to a person. Saying, quiet, come out of him, right? Uh, The demonized man. Quiet, be still, As if to say the exact same kind of demonic power that was behind the man is the same force and power that is behind this storm that is raging in this story. Right, fascinating. Uh, A little bit of a tangent. It, uh, It seems like every time there is some sort of natural disaster, a hurricane, a tsunami, an earthquake where hundreds or thousands of people die there always seems to be some like foolish Christian leader who decides to get on TV and, and say something really stupid something like this natural disaster was the will of God. And then they'll use some churchly churchy language like God is sovereign he's bringing his wrath upon the gays and lesbians or whatever it is and they'll say God is in control. And I think God is in control by the way I hate that phrase. It's, it's nowhere to be found in the Bible, actually. And I get what we say when we say that, but really, when you say that without kind of the robust nuance, like, you know, okay, innocent people died in this natural disaster, and you're saying God is in control, which begs the question what kind of God is in control of that? In stark contrast, look at what Jesus does. Jesus is mad at the storm, and he rebukes the storm, saying, quiet, be still, and then it's over. Now, yes, it is true that natural disaster can come from the hand of God. Whether you and I like it or not, we see this, especially in the story of Exodus, when God sends the 10 plagues against the Egyptians. But it is also true, if not, I would say more true, that a natural disaster can be from a demonic power, like in this story. And it's also true that a natural disaster can be the result of the fact that we live in a broken and fallen world, and, and, uh, and sometimes nature and humanity clashes, and we're on the losing end of that. Which reason do you think Jesus seems to default here? It doesn't seem like what he thinks jives with a lot of the televangelists people talk about, about who's, who's the cause of all this. Back on track, off the tangent, verse 39. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Now in English here it says, uh, it said that there was a furious squall and then it says it was completely calm. But again, another really fascinating thing in Greek is this. When it talks about a furious squall, in Greek it's the word megale, meaning like, uh, it comes from the word mega, which is what? Big, right? Like mega church, megatron, mega whatever, right? It's a mega storm, and it's a play on words here because here in this verse, after Jesus rebukes the wind, like it says, then it was mega calm. Almost as if to say, it's not like just the winds died down and went back to normal. It was, it's almost as if to say there was a strong storm like, that no one's ever seen before. And then it became so still, as still as glass, it was a mega calm which is kind of eerie. Verse 40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus, who was the one being questioned earlier by the disciples, don't you care, Jesus, is now the questioner. Right, and and he asks, "Why are you so afraid?" The word here is pejorative in Greek, meaning he's not just saying, "Why are you afraid?" Like, why it doesn't mean, "Why are you scared of this moment?" He is saying, "Why are you so cowardly in your character?" Why are you the kinds of people who are cowardly and get scared of everything? Do you still, after all that we've been through, after all the healings that you've seen, after all the miracles that you've experienced, after all that you've been with me, do you still have no faith? And so the one who was being questioned turns around and is now the questioner. And then it says in verse 41, they were terrified, right? And so this, again, this is even more graphic and more vivid than they were scared. It says they were terrified. And again, another fascinating thing is, look, they were scared of the hurricane, which is like a storm that they've never seen before. And now they are terrified of the rabbi who has power over the hurricanes. And the closing question that is the entire point of Mark's book is this. They ask, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I mean, their eyes are wide open in amazement, in terror, in fear, in wonder. So now given this story, now that we've walked through this story, let's kind of uh, uh, go through some, a few lessons here, right? Mark, like any brilliant author, there means that there are multiple layers to this story. The, the first uh, I'll, I'll say three. The first one I'm barely going to spend any time on because we'll come back to it in the coming weeks. The first point that, Jesus is try, uh, that Mark is trying to make is that Jesus, who is this man? This person is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Right? That, that's the most obvious point. And again, we'll come back to that in the coming weeks. But, uh, but uh, another layer under that, and maybe obvious uh, to, to some of us, because maybe we've heard this in sermons before, and I'll reiterate this again to us, is this. Jesus is with you when your boat is about to go under, and you are freaking out. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, which was uh, back in 2015, what, three year, two, three years ago, which means none of you remembers, right? Right? Uh, Mark was actually written uh, a few decades after Jesus to Christians in the city of Rome who were undergoing persecution, prison, torture, and death all in the hands of a crazy, psychotic Caesar named Nero. He was putting Christians to death, uh, burning them and uh, uh, throwing them to the lions. And the disciples in Mark's day, no doubt, are freaking out so, Mark, in writing this story, is drawing a parallel between the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and what the disciples, what the followers of Jesus in the city of Rome at that time were going through. So, Mark is trying to say, look, contrary to what you may feel, because feelings are deceptive, you are not alone. God is not indifferent, He is not aloof nor is he numb to all of your pain and suffering. Instead, God is with you, which means that you are never alone. This is Mark's invitation to his readers, both ancient and modern, that when you are in a storm, go ahead and quote-unquote wake Jesus up, meaning freak out, vent, pray, all of your fears and doubts and anxieties, give it to God, he could take it, It's fine, but just don't be surprised when God quiets your storm and then turns around and asks you, do you still have no faith? After all that you've seen me do, after all the times that I've rescued you, do you still have no faith? And it's hard, right? Because evil, chaos, tragedy come out of the blue and hit us, right? Just like the storms in the Sea of Galilee. They come out of nowhere, and in one instant, a phone call, an email, or text message, our lives are changed forever. Like it's a betrayal, or a loss, or the death of a loved one, or or a car accident, or news of cancer of somebody in the family. And, And tragedy hits us like that. And if you're anything like me, when stuff like that happens, right, it's, it's not easy to not freak out. What, what often happens to me is I start freaking out, right? I, I get filled with fear, and then I actually want to become, I become more of a control freak than I already am because I try to control the situation. And then ultimately, like, anger, like, floods my heart and mind. Like, oh, I can't believe this. For some of you and, and for some of us, maybe you start questioning God's love. God, don't you care? Don't you care that my marriage is on the rocks? Don't you care that my kid is sick? Don't you care about the court ruling? Don't you care? Jesus, are you asleep? Where are you, God? And so this story is actually an invitation to trust God. And keep in mind that our faith is not so much in a God who will deliver us from the storm, right? Because even in this story, God leads his disciples right into the storm, right? And he does that even now with us. So he doesn't deliver us from the storm, but rather our faith is in the God who is with us in the storm and his power over the storms. And so in storms, when we start questioning God, God, where are you? Don't you care? Don't be surprised when God turns it around and says, do you still have no faith? Right? And so Mark is inviting us to turn from questioning God to now answering God's question to us. So if you're in a storm right now, your boat is filling up, you're about to capsize, just remember this. Whatever happens, remind yourself that God is with you and you are not alone. There's another layer to this story. Uh, it may not make sense at first blush, but hang in there with me. It's this, that Jesus is someone greater than Jonah. Jonah. Jesus says that back uh, over in Matthew chapter 12, but, but uh, uh, stick with me here. In any culture, there are always uh, hints, clues, allusions in the language we use to refer to some other well-known work. So for example, uh, what does it mean when, when you say, man, that person is a Scrooge? What does that mean? Yeah, a grumpy, stingy, right? It refers to uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, the stingy character there. Or when somebody says, yeah, chocolate is her Achilles heel. Right? It means that it's the, the warrior in Greek mythology that, is, that was known to be invincible except for one area, in his heel, Right? And so it's referencing, it's alluding, it's, it's giving us hints to something else. Or uh, when, when you say, man, some random Good Samaritan stopped by and helped me when my car broke down on the highway. Where, where, where's that from? The Bible, right? Uh, Good Samaritan, right? In the same way, this entire story is set against the story of Jonah in the Hebrew Scriptures in a way that if you were Jewish, you would have caught this right away. You know, and you would have noticed the hints and clues and allusions and quotes referring back to the story of Jonah so if you imagine the the church back in the first century in Rome they're hearing the gospel of Mark and if you were you know it would have been filled with Jews and Gentiles if you were a Jew you would have heard this and you'd be like oh I get it. It, it it's referring to Jonah oh and you turn to your neighbor and you're like oh it's Jonah and he's a Gentile and he's like Jonah who's Jonah oh yeah that's right you're a Gentile you don't get it I'll explain later right but you would have been like oh my goodness and, this is, and there's, a, there's several of these allusions, but I'll just point out one. At the end of the story in, in Mark, in the calming of the storm, it says, well, it says about the disciples that they were terrified, which is actually an awkward phrase in, the original, in Greek because it's actually taken from a Hebrew phrase, uh, which is called, that's a double imperative. Um, a little geeking out there, but double imperative that literally means uh, they feared a fear. So, if you read Mark chapter four in the Greek, it's what it would have said instead. Of they were terrified. It was that they feared a fear, which is a well-known line in the middle of the story of Jonah, when the sailors, in the middle of the storm, are scared to death, and it says that the sailors feared a fear. And again, if you're Jewish, you're like, "Oh, Jonah! Now I get it." This entire story is a comparison and contrast between Jesus and Jonah. They are both similar and very dissimilar. So if you're Jewish, this is what you would have thought, right? Uh, Okay, so they're similar in the sense that both Jonah and Jesus are prophets on the way to Gentile territory. Jonah on the way to Nineveh. Jesus on the way to the Decapolis. They were both uh, caught in a storm. They were both asleep through the storm. They were both woken up by sailors who were scared to death, and both of them stopped the storm. Jonah, by by throwing himself overboard, right, and basically trying to commit suicide, and Jesus through his power over creation itself. And so there would have been a lot of connections, like, oh my goodness, now I see this. And yet, what you would have also, uh, I mean, they don't know, we know now because being on this side of the cross, we look back and go, oh, Jesus is the true Jonah in this way. They are so dissimilar in the sense that Jonah, in this story, if you, if you know that story, is running away from God's call. Jesus, on the other hand, is running straight toward God's call and confronting evil. Jonah is running away from God's call out of a sense of apathy, a sense of indifference to the evil and suffering in the world, Jesus, on the other hand, is running straight towards it to confront evil and suffering out of a compassionate heart for the world. And so in this story, in the storm, Jesus is running right into the battle with the sea itself. The defeat of evil, disorder, chaos, darkness is just one jab, one blow in a series of battle that will culminate in his death and resurrection on the cross where he will face Satan and his demonic forces head on. And so that, on the cross, he will have a decisive victory and he will take the full weight of evil and suffering on himself so that you and I can have eternal life in Jesus And so, this is the story. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That means that Jesus will not jump overboard. He will not jump ship when you're in the middle of a storm. He will not grab a life preserver and just have you escape from the storm but he will stay through. He will be with you in the storm and he has power over the storm and more than that, he will break the power of evil, uh, evil's grip in this world and then one day, he will usher in a glass-like calm, a glass-like peace over the entire universe and he will establish shalom once and for all. Peace. That has huge implications for you and I. First of all, I think it means this. Because of that, it means that you and I have nothing to fear but God himself. You've heard this phrase, "If if you fear God, there's nothing else to fear. And it's so true. Because the worst thing that evil could throw at you right now, no matter what you're going through, the final arrow in its quiver that evil has is death. But Jesus not only overcame death, but he defeated it once and for all. And so that means the worst thing that can happen to you is you die, and then one day you wake up on a new day on the other side of the resurrection to be with God forever and ever. That, my friends, is really good news. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me? And so, God, for those of us who are walking through some deep waters now, or will, will be walking through some deep waters, we know, we, we know that you will be with us and that we are not alone. And today, we proclaim that you are our fortress and our rock, our strength in times of trouble. You are our refuge in the storm. And so today, God, we bless your name. We bless your holy name. We worship you because you are so great and you are so good. And until that day when we are with you, God, would we be found faithful in you because of your richness, because, because, you, uh, because we are so rich in your love, and we are so full because of your grace. And so, Jesus, we lift up our hearts. We, lift up, we give up our lives and surrender to you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.